Episode 54, Programming for the GPU. Take it away, Patrick. We're here today with Mark Harris from NVIDIA. Mark, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about what you do with NVIDIA. Okay. Yeah, so uh, my title at NVIDIA is Chief Technologist for GPU Computing Software. And my role is kind of twofold. One is inward-facing and one is outward-facing. So my inward-facing role is to help um, define our software strategy for, for computing at NVIDIA. And so for, that's for things like um, CUDA programming, which we'll talk about more, hopefully. And the other aspect is the external-facing role, which is a little bit of evangelism, um, giving um, talks at, uh, at conferences such as the GPU Technology Conference. And, and I also run a, a blog called Parallel for All, which is um, on NVIDIA. Hopefully you guys can drop a link after the show recording, um, and we on that blog, it's a blo- it's a developer blog written by developers for developers, and it's it's a deeply technical jo- blog about parallel programming and GPU programming. So, what is, can you maybe just give us a little bit ba- bit of background? What Nvidia is, what they do as a company. I mean, I think most people have heard of them, but they just think of well, I guess people don't go to Best Buy anymore, but um, you go to Amazon <laughs> or Newegg or, or whatever the international equivalent I is. I still go to Shopper. Best Buy. Sorry, Best Buy. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, anyways, but kind of tell us who NVIDIA is, like what they do, and like why sure. CUDA is a thing. Okay, so, um, well, what is NVIDIA? NVIDIA is a visual computing company, um, and what that means is that we um, focus on building solutions for all aspects of visual computing. Um, we... Uh, call ourselves the inventors of the GPU, that's the graphics processing unit. Um, <clears throat> I think NVIDIA coined that t- term back in like 1999 with the first GeForce product. Um, and mo- most consumers would be familiar with, especially gamers would be familiar with our GeForce uh, GPUs, which are graphics cards for um, making your game's graphics look amazing and run really fast. Um, but uh, GPUs are used in a, in a variety of uh, computations, and so we have four kind of f- focused business areas, and those are gaming, professional visualization, data center, and automotive. Um, and visual computing or parallel computing are really important in all four of those, and it turns out that GPUs are very uh useful and good at accelerating those computations. So the obvious ones are gaming, because the GPU was designed for computer graphics and also professional visualization. Um, but the area I work in is, is uh, data center and parallel computing. So um, it, you know, GPUs, it turns out, are great at um, parallel computing because graphics is parallel. And I mean, I don't know how much detail you want me to go into about the history of that, but... Um, well, maybe, I mean, a simple way of saying it is that uh, with graphics, you're trying to do two things. You're trying to uh, figure out where a bunch of triangles are in space, and then you're also trying to uh, draw sort of a bunch of pixels on the screen. And in both cases, they're kind of embarrassingly parallel. Like, you have many triangles, and you, they can all be discovered, rendered, uh, you know, located independently, and you have many pixels that can all be processed 
more or less independently. And so that makes the GPU kind of like ideal is, uh, for, for doing a lot of these things in parallel, right? Absolutely. Yeah, so, I mean, you have millions of pixels to shade in every frame and you're running, um, you know, 60 frames a second or whatever. So, um, <clears throat> and triangles, if, I guess modern games probably have um, hundreds of thousands to millions of triangles per, per frame too. So you're getting to the point of having, you know, pixel size or sub-pixel triangles. Um, and, yeah, so so... Back in the day, <laughs> back when I was in grad school, um, and actually way before that, um, <clears throat> people kind of recognized this with graphics hardware, and they started um, hacking around on on using graphics APIs and um, GPUs to do computing that the GPUs weren't really necessarily designed for. And so this is something that I focused on in grad school, and, and I called it GPGPU, which stands for General Purpose computation on GPUs. Um, <clears throat> and um, uh, since then, that's become something that what isn't just grad students um, mucking around with graphics APIs. And, that, and back in 2006 or 2007, NVIDIA launched um, CUDA, which is a set of extensions to C and C++ that allow you to program um, GPUs for parallel computing in a traditional programming language rather than using a graphics API. Yeah, I mean, so before... I, oh, go ahead, Patrick. Yeah, so I, I kind of recall vaguely that time when when uh, people first started kind of doing the GP, GPU stuff. And, uh, I mean, you might be able to fill me in where I'm uh, misremembering or incorrect, Mark, but um, it, it, at first you were writing in a language which was essentially a shader for the GPU, so you kind of had to still frame whatever problem you were doing in terms of... Yeah trying to tell the graphics what to do. Then CUDA came out. What, what, did, what was that process like, and what did NVIDIA really see that made them say, hey, there's something here? Um, <clears throat> yeah, it's interesting. So my personal story for this was that I was an intern at NVIDIA in 2001, and um, that's when I sort of learned. I, I, my PhD was on cloud simulation and rendering, so um, not... That was, this was before people were talking about the cloud, so I was rendering clouds, right? Like pictures of clouds. <laughs> like balls right. um, of moisture. Okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In the sky. Um, and uh, I had gotten this idea. At NVIDIA, I learned um, from some of the engineers there about some of the things they'd done with shaders. Like one of the guys wrote some shallow water equation sol solvers uh, in DirectX and the game of life. He had the game of life running in, in pixel shaders. Um, and this was before... Um, I think they called it Shader Model 2.0 or something like that. So um, there was no floating point on these GPUs at that point. Um, so you had to kind of hack everything in fixed point. You had basically 10-bit precision in the pixel shaders. Um, <clears throat> and that was fun. <laughs> but I, I basically got the idea... Um, and I learned that NVIDIA was going to be coming out with GPUs with floating point pixel shaders... Um, in the near future, and so I went back to grad school, and I thought, well, what if I did all of the simulation of the clouds on the GPU in addition to the rendering? Um, and uh, so I basically started doing fluid simulation on the GPU. And um, but I didn't know, and a lot, and a bunch of other grad students, were, you know, and researchers were doing stuff in similar areas. There was ray tracing going on in shaders. There was um, uh, FFTs even. Um, 
And so I yeah, kind of I started. Saw like, uh, I went on, like, I was also into the GPGP stuff very early. And there was a thing okay. you could download that would do edge detection. So yeah. instead of rendering the teapot, filters, yeah. yep, it would actually render the edges. And uh, it was so hard. I mean, this is pre-CUDA. It was so hard. I mean, it took like a week to figure out like how to get it to compile. And then, oh, you don't have the right GPU. You have to go out and buy another one. And it was just, it was, it, CUDA made it so much easier. Right. So I think that, I mean, while I was back in, in grad school and not at NVIDIA um, before I came on full time, obviously people at NVIDIA really saw this opportunity. Um, and I believe that it was Jensen, our CEO, um, ultimately, who, who um, was convinced. But, um, <clears throat> and then by the time I got back in 2003, there was already an effort to build NV50, which became G80, which was the first CUDA-capable GPU. Um, and there was, you know, it was the first GPU with a dedicated computing mode with byte addressable memory instead of just pixel shaders, um, random access memory from from the shader units. Um, and uh, the, in terms of, you're right, it was hard, and it w it was kind of fun, and it was if you felt like you know a hacker getting this stuff to work, but when you got something to work, it kind of had this feeling of magic, right? Oh wow, my fluid simulation actually works. Or, you know, this thing, this this um reaction diffusion simulation that I wrote w that only that really needs more, way more precision than I have in these fixed point pixel shaders actually works and it felt like magic, which is really not a sustainable feeling in software development. <laughs> right. <laughs> um so what Nvidia did was to build hardware that that was um dedicated to computing as well as graphics, and then build software on top of that. And so we saw early on, by ta from talking to potential customers, that we would have to build something using languages that they're familiar with. And when we went around to customers, um, and you know, we were talking to people in, in areas ranging from um, uh, defense to oil and gas to uh, um, fluid simulation, like Cadence and um, Affluent, I guess, was the company at the time. Now I think it's Ansys now, um, and they all said, "Well, it's got to either be four. It's got some said it's got to be Fortran. Some said it's got to be C or C plus plus." So um, we decided we were kind of afraid of Fortran at the time. So we were like, "Well, <laughs> we've got to build something that's based on C," and that became CUDA. So it's basically C with some extensions, and it took away that magic feeling. You know, it did <laughs> what it did when you wrote a program. It did what it you thought it should do rather than, oh, maybe if I hack this this way, um, I'll, it'll work. And then it does. <laughs> yeah. And did those um, first CUDA-capable GPUs, I mean, did they get widespread adoption? I mean, did NVIDIA's investment in putting in the extra work to build a compiler tool chain and all that, did that, that really kind of pay off or did it take a while? Um, well, it certainly, it, I, it definitely paid off, um, but it also took a while. Um, there was a lot of initial interest, um, uh, and, uh, you know, adoption started immediately, you know, people were using CUDA 1.0. I still talk to customers who were like, yeah, I've been using CUDA since it first came out or the beta or whatever, you know, um, for, and, and building, starting to build real software with it right away. But, um, to, to really call it successful and actually see real applications that people could go and buy or download that, that accelerate with GPUs, um, probably took a couple of years, um, and and now you know um, 
it's it's the point. I could, wouldn't say CUDA's mainstream, but but it's definitely something that um, that real uh, products and um, labs and researchers and all of the, these things all use. So um, just for for people's clarity, I mean, if you're playing a video game, I, I don't know what the cool kids play these days, um, and it's, it's running some amazing graphics. Is it the case that there's also CUDA programs doing general processing in the same pipeline, or is it typically that you run some specific scientific application that would use it? Um, so early on, we made efforts to to get CUDA into some games, and there are some ways that CUDA is used in games. So, for example, NVIDIA has a um, a phys- physics uh, simulation library for games called PhysX, um, and it uses CUDA for you know cloth simulation, particle simulation, rigid body simulation, things like that. Um, but uh, most games that are doing computing, and a lot of games do do general purpose computing, they use um, compute shaders within the graphics API. So after CUDA came out, um, DirectX and OpenGL both introduced their own flavors of compute shaders um, that basically are able to to do similar things to CUDA programs, but within the graphics API, so that you don't have to, you know, be juggling two different APIs. Mm. Um, and uh, but they have largely the same programming model, you know, within the kernel. A kernel is what we call a parallel region of your program within the kernel. Whether it's in the, the graphics um, API compute shader language or in CUDA C++. The programming model is basically the same with a few minor differences. So that may be a perfect transition to kind of go into like what is that, you know, obviously it's the audio only thing, but like kind of describe to us like what is the programming model for writing these programs? Yeah, sure. So if you want to write a program for a GPU, you want to take advantage of all of the parallelism. So GPUs have now thousands of parallel cores. and if you can think of these, if you're, if you're coming from a graphics background, you can think of these as pixel shader cores, or, but really they're unified cores that do everything from transforming um, vertices for the vertex shader to um, shading pixels to just running compute instructions. And so you're basically writing, you, the way you can think about it is you look in your program for parallel or regions that are, have have parallelism. And what that means is you have loops, typically in a program, where the iterations of the loop are not dependent on each other, right? So they could be run at the same time. So you can think of kind of flattening out that loop and then running each iteration at the same time, um, or many of the iterations at the same time, uh, on separate processors. And so that's what CUDA lets you do. And um, basically you write a program where, or you write a kernel program, where within that function, the whole kernel is being executed by many threads simultaneously. So basically the code is single thread code, but it's run in parallel across many threads. Um, so, so and you, you have, yeah, oh, you, you kind of hinted at this, but you know, when someone, uh, uh, buys a computer, they buy, you know, a quad core computer or they buy an I seven that has six cores, right? And you're saying the GPU has, you know, a thousand cores. So, so it sound I mean, just in a very naive way, you could say, well, why why not why not use the GPU for everything? It has a thousand cores. My CPU has four <laughs> cores, right? So why would I why would I ever use the CPU? Well, I, I I will say that the GPU is becoming increasingly important, but um, 
in fact, I was just looking at a, I saw a die shot of a Broadwell CPU and it's half GPU, the, the die is. Oh. <laughs> like literally, literally. The, the, the actual cores, oh, well, this, is, this was a Broadwell, uh, uh, not a Xeon. Yeah, Xeon is, probably, is not half GPU, but a, um, just a regular core like i5 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and with four cores, so the four cores take up, you know, maybe a quarter of the die area or something like that. But um, so why not use a GPU for everything? Um, well, the cores are different, as you're hinting at. Um, uh, we call them CUDA cores, but, um, you know, that's a sort of a marketing name. But um, really, they are um, individual processing elements that um, process instructions, but they... They have a. They use a parallel execution model that that's called SIMT. You may have heard of SIMD. SIMD stands for single instruction multiple data. And what that means is that you have a single instruction, but it gets executed by um, on multiple data elements simultaneously. And so you can think of that as having multiple threads. That well, no, you you can think of that as having a vector of data elements, and you apply the same. Um, instruction to all the elements in that vector simultaneously. Yeah, like extra so that's ALUs, what, that'd be that's, Intel SSE, yeah. That's SSE, that's right, that, or AVX. And um, that's where you basically have a bunch of ALUs. SIMT is, uh, it was an NVIDIA coin term, um, but it's been used um, more broadly since then, I think. It stands for single instruction, multiple threads. So now instead of just having a vector of data elements, you actually have multiple threads that... Um, execute the, the same instruction. And the, the difference, the important difference here is that each of these threads has its own program counter, which means that they can branch to different instructions separately. Whereas with SIMD, the branch has to be wrapped around the whole vector effectively. So if you, if you need to make a decision, it has to be at the granularity of your vector size, <clears throat> right? If you need to make a decision in CUDA or in SIMT, then it can happen at a single thread granularity. Of course, there's a cost to that because the hardware, although we have all these little cores, they do share instruction fetch and decode logic. Um, and so um, you may end up with overhead of, of um, replays or predication of your instructions. I'm getting pretty technical here, but... Um, no, it's great. Uh, um, but that's kind of the difference between GPU cores and uh, vector units or SSE units. Um, and uh, but where the the real difference is in terms of your original question is that the cores are very lightweight cores on a GPU, and they don't have very good single thread performance. They really get their performance in aggregate, right? From running many threads in parallel, usually doing the same thing, possibly branching and diverging some, but usually doing the same thing. Um, and uh, CPU cores, on the other hand, are are um, they have a lot of things like branch prediction and big caches. They're optimized for latency, in other words. They're optimized to reduce latency, which means that if you only have one thing to do, you can do it really fast. Um, on a GPU, if you only have one thing to do, you're leaving you know, 999 cores idle. Ah, um, gotcha. Right? So um, I, the, the way we talk about it is that GPUs are... Th- optimized for throughput, CPUs are optimized for latency. Um, there's a bit of gray area there because CPUs have AVX and they can do things in parallel too. Um, it's just that the scale of parallelism is, is lower on a CPU versus a GPU. Um, and we're optimized for 
throughput, which means instead of trying to reduce latency, we try to hide it. So we always talk about latency hiding. GPUs are really good at hiding latency by executing other work while, while we're waiting. So if there's a memory access that we have to wait for data to come into the cache from off chip, then we do work in other groups of threads, possibly even the same instruction in other groups of threads. But, um, but we, you know, we, issue, we have other instructions to issue to hide that latency. So does that carry over to the graphics world as well? Like uh, maybe you know, one part of the screen... It comes from the graphics world. Okay, so one part of the screen, the triangles have all been positioned, and you say, okay, this part of the screen is good to go. Let's start rendering pixels. Meanwhile, the next frame of triangles is already trying to get pushed to the screen at the same time. Like, is that the kind of pipelining you're talking about? It's, yeah, it's, there is pipelining involved, but it's, it's also just about having, um, so if you, if you think about your pixels, you have um, some large triangle possibly that has, you know, hundreds of pixels it covers, and they're all shaded with the same, same pixel shader. So that pixel shader has to go and compute, it has to fetch from textures, it has to blend the colors that it gets, it, you know, you can do arbitrary computation now. So, but those um, pixels are grouped together into groups um, in the hardware, and in CUDA we, we refer to those as warps. It's a term that comes from weaving, actually, but um, um, because you had parallel threads in weaving. Oh, okay. um, um, and so those warps... Uh, so each warp is a group of 32 threads or 32 pixels, and um, while one warp is waiting on a texture fetch, for example, or a memory load, then we can switch to instructions from another warp within within the um, the what we call the multiprocessor, and so the multiprocessor can issue instructions from multiple warps simultaneously, or while while one warp is is waiting. Um, Oh, so it's similar, to, it's similar to pipelining. It's it's actually more similar to hyperthreading. Yep, that makes sense. Yeah, so for people cute. who don't know, you could probably explain it better than I could. But I think a loose definition is hyperthreading is um, you have you know on your CPU you have you know a floating point unit. You have uh, uh, something that does integer arithmetic. Um, you have many of these little mini modules, and you could sort of fake out having two or more threads. Um, if one of them needs the floating point unit and the other one needs the arithmetic unit at the same time, then it's as if you're executing them both in parallel. Right. And, and on the CPU, I believe um, what hyperthreading requires ultimately is duplicating resources like the register file. Right. So, um, and on the CPU, the register file is relatively small. There's, or at least on x86 CPUs, there, there's... Um, well, the visible registers are fairly small, but um, on a GPU, the register file is quite big. Um, it's almost like uh, this, you know, a small cache, except that it's a register file, so um, it's like directly accessible by instructions. Um, and so we actually have, you know, you know, on the on the GPU, the the the, the cores that I talked about are grouped together into things called um, multiprocessors. So, for example. Um, a multiprocessor on Pascal, the latest architecture we just announced, has like 64 CUDA cores, and it has, um, I think, 128 kilobyte or 256 kilobyte register file on that SM. Wow. Um, so, so when so you talk there's about a lot of registers, when you talk about having a multiprocessor, and you said you each core needs to be 
at a similar instruction, basically, that you want to be executing the same thing as much as possible. Um, I think this is really interesting because it really understanding how your program gets executed helps you design really good software, or at least Absolutely. in the efficiency <laughs> case. And um, what is it that's actually different that causes you not to be able to get off that far? So you have the multiprocessor, you have all these cores in it, and what is it that actually, like you said, you you duplicate some things, not other things. Like what is it actually that is preventing you from being able to have code running very different parts of the program? Um, so what's prevent uh, what's preventing you having code? Well, um, but each core, each thread basically doesn't isn't being run on on a full blown core that has a separate you know instruction fetch and decode and issue right. So that logic is shared across basically thirty two um, cores, and so we group threads into groups of thirty two, um, and that's what we call a warp. And uh, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question. Yeah, no, that's that's kind of what I was saying. It's so that the instructions yeah. are are fetched in a batch, and that you want exactly. all of the cores in the multiprocessor to execute that same thing. So if they get too far off, they need some instructions that another processor doesn't yet need, or whatever, right? And then you get out of sync, and you'd have to add extra hardware to handle that, which yes, would right. get you and closer and closer to a CPU core. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, that's right. And and so when you execute. When you write code for a GPU, you want to be aware of um, kind of the branchiness of that code, right? So if you have a loop where you're processing a lot of data, but each iteration of the loop, there's you're checking conditions, and you know it's really data dependent. If every iteration is completely data dependent, what it does, then performance may potentially suffer. But if you can kind of do some work ahead of time to to maybe reorder your data. Um, sorting or something like that, um, or binning, so that um, threads that are contiguous um, in terms of their order, their thread ID or whatever, are accessing memory that's contiguous and also making decisions that are contiguous. Then you're going to get much better performance. So this so would be like about, if you had you know, even numbers. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to try to give an example. So you're telling like if you had even numbers, you do operation A, and an odd numbered indexes of the array, you do operation B. Then instead of running linearly through the array, you would want to maybe like process all the even numbers first, and then all the odd numbers, as opposed to even odd, even odd. Yeah, I would just use my um, use arithmetic on the indices in that case, instead of um, saying if even do this, if odd do that, right? Um, and so yeah, that, that makes threads. Sense. Yeah, just space out what your threads are doing rather than which threads are doing it. So how does somebody, <laughs> if, if you have all of these threads all doing, well, I guess doing the same thing, but on different on different pieces of the data, how do you debug this? I mean, I imagine you don't step through the debugger like you do in, with GDB and go line by line. That would probably be bad. Um, well, it's a great question. How do you, how do you debug GP programs? Um, <clears throat> and we do have tools. Um, uh, we have very good tools now, in fact. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they've gotten a lot better. The, the CUDA 1.0 days, that, you know, we did introduce CUDA 1.0 with a debugger and a profiler, but they were very basic. Um, so you, do, you can step through the instructions, and people do. And when you're really trying to figure out a, a difficult bug, you know, just like on a CPU, it really helps to have a debugger that lets you step in and, and inspect um, memory locations and variable values and things like that. Um, and, and so you can do that, but there are a couple different modes that you can step, 
right? So um, we have a couple of tools. One is um, on the Linux side, we have um, what's called CUDA GDB, which is basically um, a modified GDB that supports programming or uh, debugging CUDA programs. Um, on Windows, we have um, something called Nsight. Uh, sorry, Visual Studio Edition, which is a plugin for Visual Studio that um, gives you debugging and profiling inside the IDE for GPU programs. And that, uh, that Insight um, also has graphics profiling and debugging features. Um, there's also a, a, an Eclipse plugin called, or an Eclipse um, IDE called Insight Eclipse Edition for, for Linux and Mac that kind of wraps the CUDA GDB stuff as well as the profiler. Um, <clears throat> anyway, so if you're stepping through a program running on the GPU, I talked about warps. One way to step through is to actually look at one thread and step each you know, instruction for that or each line of code for that thread. Um, another way to do it is to step a warp or... Um, or to step all the threads in what's called a thread block, um, which is a CUDA construct. Um, and uh, there's different, you know, different reasons you might want to do that. You might want to actually look at the values held in variables for a number of threads at once, and you can do that in the debugger. So you're kind of doing parallel debugging. But, or you might want to just you know, focus on one thread to try to understand the logic a bit better. And so you can, in Insight Visual Studio Edition at least, I'm not sure about the CUDA GDB, probably also there too, you can toggle which way you want the, the debugger to step. I mean, the hardware is always going to run things a warp at a time, but it look to you or only focus in on the values of a single thread if you want. Oh, I see. That makes sense. So I guess if you're doing this, you're looking at one uh, warp, and then the other ones are just kind of frozen. Uh, or I guess they could be running. It doesn't matter because they're not, they're not dependent on each other. Yeah, well, if you're debugging, if you're hitting a breakpoint, you you do you need to freeze the program, and so that's actually requires hardware, um, and it's something that we've gradually improved. It, it used to be that you had to have um, you couldn't have a display attached to the GPU you were debugging, and if you think about it, you know the GPU ha has modes; it has graphics mode and compute mode, and if you freeze it in compute mode, then it can't service the display, which means you're, <laughs> you're running Windows and suddenly Windows freezes, right? So, right. so <clears throat> you had to have a separate GPU to, in order to debug previously. Now we can do single G GPU debugging. And with Pascal, which we just announced at, at GTC in March, um, we have compute preemption, um, which basically allows you to, um, you know, just as, as it sounds, just with, traditional preemption, you know, you basically can um, store the state of the program and kick it out and switch to something else, some other application. And so that allows the debugger to, um, to step through programs and hit breakpoints um, while um, making sure the operating system is interactive on a single GPU system. So one of the things you, so, I mean, obviously you're talking from the perspective of uh, NVIDIA and CUDA, but I mean, people will know, and you mentioned before looking at the die shot of some of the Broadwell chips or whatever, having GPUs on the same die as a CPU. What are, you know, obviously there's probably some advantages and some disadvantages. You kind of speak to like what the difference is between a processor integrated with a GPU versus a discrete GPU. Sure. So, um, yeah, I mean, the majority of the products 
that NVIDIA sells, the GPUs that we sell are discrete GPUs. In other words, they're, they're on a board that plugs into like a PCI Express socket. Um, and um, they're separate from the CPU. And so, uh, well, just a little bit on that. When, when you're programming um, a program that uses the GPU, for example, in CUDA, um, you're writing a heterogeneous program. You know, the program still needs to use the CPU, right? So um, most programs have at least control from the CPU, if not significant computation there also. And so you have to take care of um, the GPU and the CPU have separate memory, and so there are transfers that happen to have to happen between the GPU and the CPU. Um, and I can come back to that later. In fact, we should come back. Remind me to talk about unified memory. Um, okay. But... Uh, there are also processors that are integrated, as you mentioned. So um, NVIDIA has a line of processors called Tegra, which are a system on a chip. There's also, you know, as I mentioned, Broadwell um, uh, core CPUs have their um, Iris graphics on board. So they have a GPU uh, integrated with the CPU on die. Um, so these are kind of similar in some ways. Um, the system on a chip approach is, is a bit broader. <clears throat> the, our, the Tegra basically has a, a few ARM cores, and then it has a GPU, and it has also has a bunch, bunch of other, you know, all the things that you need to build a whole um, small system. And so Tegra is used in things for like laptop, uh, sorry, not laptops, um, tablet computers, um, like the Google Pixel C, I think, has, has Tegra in it. Um, and uh, it's also used in something we call Jetson, which is an embedded development kit, which is aimed at people who are developing things like robots, drones, um, other embedded systems. And um, so to your question, you know, what's the difference between these and the trade-offs? Well, if you have a certain die size, um, if you can dedicate it all to GPU, obviously you're going to have a more powerful GPU but if you have to split it half between GPU and CPU or GPU and CPU and other stuff, then the, you know, the amount of computational capability of each of those things goes down. So it's a, it's a balancing act, right? What do you want to do? If you want to do high-end supercomputing, you know, tes NVIDIA Tesla GPUs are used in supercomputers like Titan at, at Oak Ridge National Labs. If you want to do that, then um, uh, the system on a pro chip approach probably isn't, isn't the right way for you because you need the most powerful GPU with the highest memory bandwidth and the highest computational throughput, right? If you want to do, if you want to build a robot where you need CPUs and GPUs and sensors and, you know, data inputs and all this kind of stuff, then a, an integrated processor that's really low power obviously makes a lot of sense. So, you know, we, we, we build things for the whole spectrum, from very low power embedded to um, places where we need power efficiency, but the actual total system power is not much of a, not as much of an issue. Um, does that? It? I mean, yeah, going yeah, right that makes sense. Um, and then what is there? So you talked about you know kind of transferring out over, let's say, PCI Express, and that you know obviously passes certain data size. That makes great sense, as you said, in like supercomputing. But then if you talk about how how does as a programmer is there a way to kind of guide someone and say hey you could do this on the CPU or you could take the time to transmit to the GPU and then transmit it back um, and how they kind of 
build that threshold in their mind about which one to do? Or is there even a way to like write a single program and then at runtime or at compile time, it determines, you know, hey, based on this code size, we're going to execute this in one versus the other. Yeah, okay, there's a lot in that. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's all right. Um, so I'll go back to what I, what I was talking about. If you're on a system with a GPU and a CPU that are separate and they have separate memories, um, up until CUDA 6, which we launched a couple of years ago, you always had to explicitly manage all memory. And so it's as you were talking about, you have to... You would have to create, let's say the data comes from a file. So your CPU loads that data from file into CPU memory. You then have to allocate GPU memory for that data and do an explicit mem copy between the CPU memory and the GPU memory. So that's, you know, CUDA has an API for that, CUDA mem copy, right? It works just like mem copy, except it allows you to copy from the CPU to the GPU or the, the other direction. Um, <clears throat> or from GPU memory pointer to another pointer. Um, and uh, there's a cost to that, because PCI Express has a certain bandwidth. So you know, given a, a data size, you know the bandwidth of PCI Express, you can estimate how long that's going to take. And so if you have a huge amount of data and a small amount of computation, and you're only going to do a small amount of computation on the, on the GPU before you need to do something on the CPU, like you know, I don't know, send it on the network or write it back to disk or, or whatever, um, <clears throat> then the overhead of transferring it might be higher than the computation cost uh, 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 that actually, you know, of the performing the task on the GPU. And so there are trade-offs, as you hinted at. You, you need to decide whether it's worthwhile on the current hardware to transfer data to the GPU for processing. And there are many applications where it's obviously beneficial. Um, but there are some applications where that trade-off is trickier, you know. And so there's a lot of things you can do, like um, trying to overlap the communication with computation via pipelining. Uh, we have facilities in CUDA for streaming. So basically, you can associate computations and copies with separate streams of API commands so that if they're independent, they can be overlapped. So what you could do is you could chunk your data up so that you transfer a little bit of it, you start processing on it, and then you start you do another transfer on a separate stream simultaneously, things like that. Um, but yeah, there is a bit of a balancing act there, in, and it's, it depends on the application. Sometimes it's trickier than others. Um, that makes sense. And so if, I think if you have Tegra, right, then, then you're sharing some memory, so then you don't... I guess a copy doesn't happen there. Something else must happen or something. Uh, yeah. So on Tegra, you have one memory. So, uh, you know, it's shared between the, all the processors in, the, in Tegra. So, um, so, you know, you can um, allocate a pointer and then just share it between CPU and GPU code. Um, there's a couple of things, there's a couple of gotchas on current Tegras, I believe, like on the, the TK1, I'm not sure if it's true, on the, the, on the Tegra K1, I don't know about the Tegra X1, the caches were not co coherent between the CPU and GPU, and so um, sometimes what seems like it should be free actually has a cost <laughs> gotcha. because of, yeah. of having to invalidate caches, right? That um, makes sense. Um, so, so there's you know um, there's a, a a wide variety of people 
who who want to leverage a GPU. There's there's people like Patrick who builds robots and underwater submarines in his garage. Um, and there really are people. Cool. <laughs> no, that's not true. But that's a good <laughs> idea. <laughs> and there are people like me who who know nothing about uh, C. I tried to write a C program once uh, for a, a company that Patrick and I worked for, and uh, uh, they kicked me off the project almost immediately. Um, I had no idea what I was doing, and so I'm more of like a you know MATLAB R Python person. Um, and so, how does how does sort of the CUDA ecosystem? sort of cater to all of these different people of different backgrounds. Um, they, they, apparently, they don't do Fortran, so those people are SOL, but for everybody else. <laughs> Sorry, the last part you broke up. What, oh, oh they I don't said do that. One? You told us earlier that, that uh, it doesn't support Fortran, so the Fortran people are SOL. Not but No, but, they're not. Oh, they're not. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but and great, that's a great question. Um, so, and you said the word ecosystem, and we do talk about ecosystem at NVIDIA a lot in terms of, of CUDA, and I know a lot of companies do that, but whenever you're building a platform, you care about the ecosystem. And so you're right, there are a lot of programmers and there are many programming languages, and we would like to enable them all. Uh, or anybody that has parallel programs or a lot of data to process, anybody who needs high bandwidth and throughput, we would like them to be using GPUs. And so um, we try to enable... Um, as many ways of programming GPUs as possible to cater to those different needs. And so when we talk about um, the CUDA platform, we talk about three ways of programming. There's directives, which are, which are basically um, uh, hints to the compiler that you can add to loops in C or Fortran that allow the compiler to try to automatically parallelize those loops. And if you've heard of OpenMP, OpenMP is a, is a compiler directives standard, um, <clears throat> which uh, enables you to specify, oh, this loop is parallel, please you know, parallelize it for me. And that started on CPUs. Um, there's uh, work ongoing in OpenMP to support accelerators like GPUs, and we're involved in that. There's also another standard called OpenACC, um, which is another way to program, and it supports... There's compilers for for Fortran as well as um, C uh, and C++ for OpenACC as well. Um, <clears throat> so uh, the second way is with libraries. Um, you know, if you have a fairly standard computation, or if you use a a, a um, industry standard library for those computations, there there's a good chance that there's already a drop-in replacement that targets GPUs. So, for example. There's a popular linear algebra library um, called, or it's actually just a, an interface standard that many libraries implement called BLAS. It stands for Basic Linear Algebra Subroutines. And there's a QBLAS that NVIDIA provides. Um, uh, uh, there's QFFT, which does fast Fourier transforms. If you use FFTW on the CPU, for example, or, or MKL on Intel processors, um, you know, we can you can drop in QFFT and accelerate those on the GPU. Um, there and then there's a number of other more kind of domain specific libraries. There's there's libraries of solvers, QSolver, QSparse uh, is for sparse linear algebra, um, and uh, basically a whole bunch. There's a, there's a one that's getting a lot of um, interest now called QDNN which we can talk about more, which is for deep learning, deep neural networks. Um, 
So that's the second way is libraries. And the third way is with programming languages. So I've talked a lot about CUDA, and what I really meant by that was CUDA C++ or CUDA C, um, which basically is using NVIDIA's compiler, MVCC, to compile C or C++ with extensions for parallelism. But there's also CUDA Fortran, which, is, um, which was created by a company called PGI, the Portland Group, which is now um, owned by NVIDIA. But um, they started CUDA Fortran when they were an independent company. Um, and CUDA Fortran basically takes that CUDA programming model that I talked about and in introduces it to Fortran with extensions. Um, cool. Um, there, there's even CUDA Python. No, go, keep going. go ahead. No, no, keep going. So CUDA Python is, is, was made by um, this company, Continuum Analytics, in Austin. And they make, um, they make a product called Conda, Anaconda. Yep. Um, Anaconda is awesome. It's a Python, um, basically, package manager. It's kind of like using apt-get in Linux or, um, or RubyGems, if you're a Ruby programmer. Um, and it lets you um, basically manage packages. But what they, they also have made a, a bunch of their own Python packages, um, one of which is called um, Numba, which is an open source compiler for Python. And you might say, but wait, Python's not compiled, it's interpreted. Well, what they've done is they've allowed you to put a little annotation on a function. You basically put at JIT in front of a function, and that, then it um, generates... A, um, uses LLVM to JIT compile that um, so it'll run faster on your CPU. And they also have um, um, a CUDA JIT and a number of syntax um, things to expose the CUDA programming model um, in Python. Cool. Yeah, another, you know, a couple other resources. Yeah. I, I, uh, I've used uh, Theano, which is pretty good. It's a Python-based, yeah. kind of like a MATLAB-like environment. Um, right. But, uh, but it runs on the GPU. And then there's also um, TensorFlow, which is a new one that I've only done the little test app. So I haven't played much with TensorFlow, but it also um, gives you this MATLAB-like environment, but, it, but under the hood, it's all running on the GPU. And I, I think they're both using Kublas, I believe, and KuDNN. Uh, absolutely, yes, definitely they are. Um, yeah, so these, I mean... You guys talked about these in the scientific Python podcast that I listened to, and and uh, they they are tensor libraries, or and they're MATLAB like, but I mean, really, they're being driven by by deep neural networks work, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, and that's where we focus with QDNN, but also Kublas, um, uh, the the linear algebra. So a lot of the computations on these tensors are basically just matrix vector multiplies or matrix matrix multiplies and things like that, and that's where GPUs really excel. Um, if you want to get peak performance on GPU, then just do large matrix matrix multiplies, right? Nice. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I guess what the last thing I want to say about the ecosystem is that we wanted to enable all these things, and so we've, we've worked in a few areas. One is the directives I talked about. One is in building libraries, you know, where it makes sense, where, where there, there is demand. And then the other is the compiler. Um, we wanted to enable other compiler writers and developers to build compilers that could target GPUs. And so um, we started using LLVM, which um, I don't know if you guys have talked about LLVM on this show, but it's a, a open source um, compiler tool chain. 
Um, and it basically has uh, become really popular and is being used in the back ends of a lot of different compilers for various languages. Um, and by, by allowing, by basically what we provided is some extensions to LLVM. Actually, they're not even extensions because ex because LLVM is extensible, we, we're able to do it all entirely within that. So, so um, our extensions are actually a subset of, NVV, of, of LLVM rather than a superset. Okay. <laughs> um, but uh, basically some annotations that, that allow you in the, the low-level um, intermediate representation of LLVM to express the parallelism just as you would in CUDA kernels. And that enables LLVM compilers or LLVM-based compilers to target GPUs. And so we have a library called NVVM that will generate assembly code for the GPU from this extended LVM IR. And we also open sourced um, a, a version of this and it, it's included in LVM. And so that, that has enabled a number of um, developers such as Continuum Analytics, such as PGI, such as others, um, uh, even Google to, to target GPUs much easier and to build tools, uh, uh, language tools for them. Cool. So if, uh, if you're a student just uh, starting out and you want to um, kind of get something up and running that's really cool, like, like you want to, you know, in a day or in a week, you want to go from, you know, you know, intro to CUDA to having something kind of really cool that you could show your friends, what would you recommend? Like, is there a cool demo that you recommend or... Or a site that has a cool like like for Ruby, there's the uh, Rails for Zombies, where you end up with this like Twitter-like website that you could show off. Is, is there something like that for CUDA? Yeah, so we should do like CUDA for Zombies or something like that. What I would recommend for people who specifically want to learn CUDA programming, CUDA C++, is check out. Um, there's a Udacity course. Um, it's it's actually a couple almost a couple years old now, but it would still be relevant. Um, and I, it's, I think it's called Programming Massively. No, I'm not sure. Pro okay, I'll look it up for you while you keep talking. Parallel Programming or something like that. Um, sort of Parallel Programming. Yeah, look it up. It's the, the instructors are Dave. That might be it. The instructors are Dave Lubke, who's, um, who uh, heads up graphics research at NVIDIA, and um, John Owen, Steve Davis. Um, cool. Yeah, well, definitely. Yeah, that would be awesome. And, we actually uh, it's a, uh, talked like a to lot some of guys at or, and a lot of Udacity courses. It's a it's a great um, kind of. Oh, yeah, we talked to some folks at, oh. at Udacity, and uh, uh, there's there's a show on Udacity for people who don't know what that is, but it's a it's a great platform for uh, learning uh, almost anything technical, and uh, now they're getting into other areas too. So so there's an Udacity course on CUDA um, that that all of you should check out. Yeah, 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 definitely. Cool. Um, and you know, if if you don't want to, um, if you're not a C programmer, for example, if you want to use GPUs but you're not a C programmer, um, you guys already mentioned the the tools, some of the tools that are available for Python. So um, Theano and TensorFlow. So I would say for Python programmers, they should check those out, and there's a number of tutorials for those. Theano has a bit of a learning curve, I think, but. Um, yeah, um, I would definitely agree. Yeah, Theano is, is difficult. TensorFlow, there's a lot of awesome documentation. I haven't played with it enough yet, but it but it looks it looks very solid. Okay, and and then Numba is the other one. But um, 
one one thing I also want to mention is the SDK. So um, the the comp compute SDK. I think we're calling it Compute Works SDK um, because we have a whole bunch of other Works SDKs at Nvidia. But, oh, okay. um, uh, includes the CUDA toolkit, and the CUDA toolkit has a whole bunch of samples, like tons of samples, and they're nicely grouped into categories, including you know one of the categories is called simple, you know, so so you can well, look at the like me, the, um, yeah. So well, I mean, or be, it's not necessarily because they're you know they're easy, but because they do simple things, but you know, so you can. You start with those, and there's there's cooler demos too in there. If you want to do something fun, there's there's um, in the simulation category. There's one that that I co-wrote with um, with a guy called Lars Nyland. That's uh, Nbody, um, which gets used to demonstrate GPUs a lot. Basically, it's um, simulating gravitational interactions of of stars effectively. Um, so uh, it basically does this all pairs computation of gravity between between the stars and it it runs really fast on GPUs and you can get really cool visuals out of it. It's got an OpenGL renderer. That sounds um, awesome. Yeah, it's fun to play with. Um, and then there's another one that's fun to play with. I think it's called Particles um, that a uh, former colleague of mine wrote um, and it is a really cool demo with all these balls in a box and you can just bash them around and they, they collide. You know, so they they don't pass through each other, and um, that's all done using CUDA. Um, and then there's one, I think there's a smoke particles one that does um, smoke simulation. Uh, I don't, actually, I'm not sure. It's just doing particle simulation, but it's rendering it to look like smoke with light scattering and stuff. So, cool. Um, so, so, yeah, there are so, cool demos if you want to show Yeah, you know, definitely check off. that out. So, so, what is, tell us kind of what a day at NVIDIA is like. Uh, and I know oh, in your okay, case before, here, Jason, oh, before we transition to that, because everybody out there is probably thinking this because I still am, you wanted us to remind you to talk about unified memory. Oh, yeah, we should do that before oh, we do. Right. So I should have talked about that when I was talking about the, heter the heterogeneous processors. So Yeah, that was my fault. I, I didn't want to cut anyone off. Unified memory is a feature of, of the CUDA programming model that we introduced in CUDA 6 a couple years ago. And that we're, with the Pascal architecture, we're um, enhancing it a lot. So the idea is, I mentioned that you have to explicitly transfer data from the GPU to the CPU. And um, it would be nice if that weren't the case. It would, it would be nice if you could just allocate data and then the GPU and the CPU could use it. And then, you know, behind the scenes, maybe it would get migrated on demand to the processor that needs it. And that's what unified memory is. So unified memory in CUDA 6 was basically software. Um, which does page migration between the GPU and the CPU. So if you're familiar with virtual memory, you have pages, and when um, the CPU um, needs to access data that's in a page that possibly is not in memory, it's on disk, then it, it does a page fault. It, you know, it faults on that memory, and then a, page, uh, a fault handler runs, and it, it actually loads the data into memory, and then the CPU can proceed with accessing it. Well, before Pascal, GPUs didn't have the ability to page fault, but we kind of, um, you know, looking forward to GPUs that did, we built unified memory so that um, you can still access memory from both the CPU and the GPU, and it gets migrated at the page level automatically. Um, with Pascal, that because we can page fault, that means that you can um, just allocate data 
with CUDA malloc managed, it's called. And then um, uh, when the CPU touches a page, it'll it'll get that page will get faulted back to the CPU. When the GPU touches a page, it'll get faulted to the GPU. And um, while that may sound expensive, often those page faults are are, are hideable. You know, as I was talking about latency hiding, you, you just hide that with other work. Um, and uh, it enables other things once you have hardware support. The, the, the Pascal GPUs have the ability to access a 49-bit virtual address, which is one bit larger than the CPU virtual address space, which means that the GPU can access all its own memory as well as all the CPU memory and all the memory of any other GPU in the system. It has enough virtual address space for that. And so that means you can have a single virtual memory space and the hardware just takes care of um, migrating the pages when where they're needed. And um, with operating system support, that means that you can potentially support accessing memory, even if it's just allocated with the system allocator. In other words, malloc in C or new in C++. You can just allocate memory with malloc or new, pass that pointer to the GPU and access it, pass that pointer to another GPU and access it, use it on the CPU, etc. Even if it even accessing more memory than the physical memory because this, the um, operating system handles virtual memory and paging out to disk and things like that. So this, this, it's, it's a big step for, for heterogeneous in terms of making it easier but also enabling you to process data sizes that um, you possibly couldn't before because they wouldn't fit in GPU memory. Gotcha. So what it I heard ties, was magic. Yeah, right. It's like the magic eraser in Photoshop. It just works, right. but like what yeah, I just—it kind of ties into the whole LLVM thing, where um, you know someone might just annotate a for loop, and you want to send that to the GPU, and you want that process to be as painless as possible. You don't want to have to inject a bunch of copy to the GPU commands into their code. Absolutely, it absolutely ties into that. I think you're referring to the the directives like OpenACC, right? Right, and. Um, the PGI guys actually added a mode to the OpenACC compiler about a year ago that will automatically use unified memory behind the scenes. So in OpenACC, what you normally do is you have to, you first, you annotate your loop. You say, oh, this loop is parallel, parallel. But then you find, oh, it's slower because <laughs> it actually was, the compiler doesn't know which data it needs. And so it just copies all the data over um, for that loop. Um, and uh, even if you, if some of it's read only, for example, from the GPU, or or it's not accessed on the GPU, and right. so you can you can go deeper in OpenACC and use these data directives to annotate. Oh well, copy this now, or um, um, put a read only co copy on the GPU, things like that. Um, but with unified memory, um, you shouldn't have to do that. You, I mean, there's always you always know more about your program than the compiler does, so you can always help with performance by adding more information like that. But that becomes an optimization rather than a requirement, right? Yeah. And um, and uh, yeah, so unified memory really ties into the the kind of automatic offloading approach. Gotcha. That makes sense. That makes sense. So, um, so I know you work remotely, but. Um, Sort of in general, what is sort of day-to-day -day like? You know, we have a lot of people who are in high school, in college, a lot of listeners who are in college, and uh, um, they want to know a lot about industry and what it's like to work, to work in different industries. Um, so what's, a, what's sort of a typical day like uh, at NVIDIA? 
<laughs> Typical day at NVIDIA. Well, I, I get out of bed. I sit down at my desk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so I'm probably not the best person to ask about the typical day at NVIDIA because I work remotely. Actually, but maybe um, that's true. Maybe your maybe let's 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 do this a little different. We we t we ask this question to everyone we interview, um, but here actually let's ask what's it like to work remotely because that's that's something a lot of people probably aren't familiar with actually. So working remotely is good, I think, for me um, because uh, well, it allows me to to live where I want. Um, I, I don't know if we mentioned on the recording, I, I live in Australia. My family's originally from the U.S., but uh, I now have an Australian family. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, at least for now, we, you know, we're living here and I live you know, in a beautiful place up in the mountains, um, which I couldn't do in Silicon Valley or certainly couldn't afford to. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> yeah. So... Um, the downside, there's a downside. I mean, I'm remote. I, I'm, there's the obvious time zone issue. Um, the downside of being remote is that you don't get to go into the office and work with your team directly every day. So if I were to give advice to young people starting out, because I think you were aiming towards that, mm -hmm. um, go work in the office. Go to the, the headquarters if you're going to a big company. Um, you know, unless you're working for a company that's distributed and that's the culture, and then you just have meetups and travel to meet each other now and then, then you really want to experience the company culture. And I, and, and I did that at first. I actually worked in the UK. I'd already been an intern in the home office, but I worked in the UK for a while in an office. Um, <clears throat> and it makes a difference in terms of building your team and getting to know people. So if you work remotely, you really have to work to overcome the, the barriers of being remote. <laughs> And make sure people people um, know you're there. So I have a lot of one-on-one -on -one meetings on the phone with people, um, just so I'm staying in touch and staying in the loop, and and so I can do my work. Um, yeah, and that makes sense. Uh, and then I travel. You know, I go to the U.S. several times a year. But um, but the the time zone benefit, I guess, is that you know I get up in the morning and it's afternoon in in California. And I have all my meetings early in the day, which is kind of a pain. They say you shouldn't start with meetings, but um, <laughs> I have no choice. Uh, but uh, after I'm done with my meetings, my whole afternoon is free to just focus on work. Whereas if you're in an office and you're involved in a lot of different things, then you end up getting called into tons of meetings. And um, you, it gets hard to get large blocks of time. And so I think it's important for... Um, especially in engineering, to have large blocks of time because <laughs> you yeah. really do have to have time to think and work. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree that um, it's it's uh, for people just starting out. Um, I wouldn't recommend being remote first job, um, but but it, you know, as in your case, um, once you know the team, um, there's there's a lot of companies that have a uh, work from home day. Maybe you know on Wednesdays everyone works from home or something like that. And in that case, it's okay. You know, you you kind of work around that. Or even if you've been with a certain team for four, five, six years, and then you uh, uh, move off-site, uh, you've built those relationships and you have those bonds. And, and then working from home uh, can give you a lot of benefit. Thank you, Mark, so much for, for coming on the show. Um, this is fascinating. Uh, I think, Thank you guys. Yeah, it was, it's, it's, uh, all of us have benefited greatly from, from uh, the work that you and other people at NVIDIA have done, um, both in... Uh, uh, ways for us to relax, play video games, um, and also in uh, uh, our day-to-day -day, like at work, making uh, making it so we can accelerate um, you know, our programs and and uh, 
as a person who does a lot of AI stuff, uh, it's gone from you know things taking months to things taking hours, and that's just amazing. And I know Patrick's done a lot of um, sort of uh, high performance computing and things like that himself. So yeah, cool, cool. It's been great talking to you guys. And and cool. Thanks a lot. And uh, yeah, we'll send the link to uh, your blog. Your blog is Parallel for All. Um, so uh, yeah, yeah. people listening, go to uh, um, programmingthrowdown.com. We'll have a link to that. Um, and uh, uh, thank you again. And we'll uh, uh, we'll wrap it up. And uh, thank you guys in the audience for uh, for uh, supporting us on Patreon and the reviews and the comments, feedback on social media, all of that. Yeah, we really appreciate all of that. We, as you can tell, you know, we've changed the format when we do interviews. People probably know this by now because we've done a few of them at this point. Um, we'll do a we'll do a programming uh, language show next month. Um, but uh, but we've just had some absolutely amazing people uh, like Mark reach out to us, and uh, so we definitely wanted to uh, to do this interview. And uh, I hope you guys appreciate it. The intro music is AXO by Binar Pilot. Programming Throwdown is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 2.0 license. You're free to share, copy, distribute, transmit the work, to remix, adapt the work, but you must provide uh, attribution uh, to uh, Patrick and I and uh, share alike in kind.